Happy holidays, Internet, from everyone here at the States. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News here at MTV, and you might be noticing that I don't sound like I usually do. There's a reason for that. Since it's the holidays, my producer, Mukta, and I decided to jet set to an exotic locale. It's my living room here in Los Angeles. I haven't seen it too much this year. Uh, that and our studio is in the process of being moved to our new offices in Hollywood, which are currently, and I quote, a warren of open wiring and bees. In the giving spirit of this time of year, we'd like to give you an extended cut today of one of our favorite interviews. Together, Melissa Dine and Kayla Morisich are the art pop music duo, The Blow. Recently, their collaboration has expanded to Woman Producer, an online archive and event series that highlights the contributions of women to music production. MTV critic Hazel Sills spoke to Marisich and Dine in October. What we have for you today is this longer version of their wide-ranging conversation about what compelled them to start the archive, the importance of recording the act of women producing and working in their studios, and why it's still so hard to see female artists as producers and makers of their own sonic universes. I'm sitting here today with two members of The Blow, Kayla Marisich. Hello. And Melissa Dine. Hello. Thank you both so much for taking time out of your day to come into the studio to talk about Woman Producer. Of course. It's our pleasure. So why don't you both start by telling me what led you to create the online archive Woman Producer? Well, I guess it started when we were spending a lot of time together, kind of isolated recording. And um, we live here in New York, and we don't actually have a ton of other music recording friends. Uh, we had more of a community like that in other places we've lived in the past. So we were just really on our own and working and realizing we didn't see anybody who looked like us and didn't really feel like we had a lot of role models in that time. And we'd go online to forums kind of checking about like gear questions that we had. And those weren't spaces that were particularly welcoming or feminine feeling mm -hmm. like you'd run across a post that's like name the hottest keyboardist and then there's like you know picture after picture of hot keyboardists uh. and you just wanted to find out how to like plug in your interface you know you want to troubleshoot a problem we were also working with a lot of technology and and kind of revamping the way that we were playing music and and developing a new way of instrumentation and and we were feeling like, well, what is this like synthesis? Like, what is all of these things? And so we started um, researching the history of that and realized that there was a lot of women, there were a lot of trans people, there were a lot of gay people. And, and I was like, how come I didn't know this? You know what I mean? And so we just, it was like opening Pandora's box in a way and, and realizing like, wow, since the 40s, this has been real and, and, um, and it's exciting. Yeah, we were kind of shocked. And so we were like, okay, well, we'll just imagine every time that we want to go find out a gear question that we're talking to all these amazing historic <laughs> women from, you know, the 1940s and the 1950s. Like, we found suddenly that the first piece of electronic music commissioned by the BBC ever was to this woman, was by this woman, Daphne Aram, in 1957. So it's like, okay, first piece of electronic music made by BBC was by a woman. That's really historic. That's not just incidental. Yeah. So that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you both write on the website that you have had trouble even finding documentation for very important, prominent women. Like I think about someone like Delia Derbyshire, who's in your archive, 
so many of her recordings for the BBC are like unreleased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a sort of a thing about authorship. Yeah. Like she was an engineer for the BBC so that she wasn't thought of as an engineer. I mean, as a as an artist. Yeah. It's kind of like in that tradition of all music world uh, politics. I think they really were artists. They had bad contracts, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> didn't yeah. own their art. Like, so. But yeah, I mean, there's people, you know, like Kate Bush. She is a producer. She produced Hounds of Love. That's her most huge, well-known album. And we've tried really hard to find an interview with her about production, and the information's just really scant because she's so compelling as a character, you know. I mean, there's different people. There's like Delia Derbyshire wasn't a wasn't like a singer, songwriter, performer. So there's you know different reasons all along the all across the spectrum of why why the documentation isn't as rich as you'd wish. Yeah, you know. When you find those gaps, I mean, how do you feel when you find those gaps in history? <laughs> I mean, I feel like when we, when I know that there's not any significant interviews with Joni Mitchell about her production practice, and who knows how long she'll stay on planet Earth, I feel like I just want to run to her house right now <laughs> with a microphone and say, how did you record Jungle Line? That song is crazy sounding. And, you know, Bjork was super influenced by it. I was really influenced by it way back in years ago. And um, so it just makes us want to rush out and get people to take pictures of themselves and talk about what they're doing. And it's easy to not do. I mean, like, I recorded all this record in, like, 2002 on a two-inch tape machine at Dub Narcotic and um, Kate Records. I can't believe I did that. It was incredibly ballsy. I didn't really know how to do it. I just I was said, teach me how to press play and record and how to patch in one cable to get the sound I want. And there's no pictures of me doing that. Yeah, that note about like getting photographic evidence <laughs> of being in a studio, it reminded me of this blog post that this young musician, Katie Bennett, she's in a band called Free Cake for Every Creature. Um, she wrote this blog post where she posted a photo of herself in her studio and just how important that is to sort of make these images of women in their studio with their gear. I mean, what is it about the image of a woman with in the studio with her gear that is so powerful for you both? I think it just speaks clearly to articulate this is the woman who is the author of this sound. She's not a character in it. She's not dancing around and singing. I mean, sure, she can do that too, but she made that world. Like Grimes talks about being approached a lot by um, people, particularly guys who want to offer to produce for her. And then her response is, the reason you like that is because I made that sound. (laughs) I made it. And I think there's just this kind of bravado with like, I'm a producer. Yeah. They, that's how they say it. I'm a producer. And it, what it means is like, I made the world that you get inside of, you know, like, and you really do get inside of a song when you listen to it or it gets inside of you. It's like, it's a space to live inside of, you know, like Purple Rain, you're like in it, it's around you, you carry it with you. And that's a really powerful role to have, you know. So like, um, let's think of women, let's name some women producers who do that, who like whose world you're getting inside of. I mean, sure, go Grimes. It's like that you get to get inside of that bubble with her. And that has a powerful role, you know? Like, and it's funny because women, they're producing all the time, you know? Like we make the people. <laughs> like, we need the guys, but we make the people. But I think maybe it's sort of like, oh, you're not supposed to be able to get to do that and make these sound worlds that people live inside of. It's like too much power for women to amass on their own. Yeah, yeah. Also just this, Uh, this idea of like gear um, I feel like how much do you think the stereotype of you know computers are for boys uh, (laughs) influences this idea that women uh, 
you know, when they're making electronic music or when they're making pop music that they're not producers? Like, how much do you think that influences the stereotype as a man as the producer? I think that that is what uh, I think most people assume that, but I don't know where that came from, you know? And I think that's with, with asking people to take images of, of themselves doing it, it's breaking that concept, you know? And I think it's just so simple. It's like that, it's just a weird story that popped up, you know what well, I mean? And nobody's I mean, saying it's, it has to be true. You know, I mean, and maybe it has been true in the past and the world is changing and it's an exciting time. And I think that's why that documentation is so important. It's abstract, you know, and that legend keeps living on, you know, that there's some guy in the corner. And also, like, production is a big word. It means a lot of different things. There's there's people who are twisting the knobs to people who are really overseeing things. And I think that is something that's important to document too, you know, and, and there's mm -hmm. production in radio, there's production in the sense of like engineers and mastering people. And I mean, but if you think about it, it's like, when did that start? Well, I don't know, the last 50,000 years of human culture, <laughs> mostly women have been property. And like, that's cool. It's cool that, you know, we got here to where we are. And now it just seems like we're in a moment where like gender based limitations on any expression of gender in any field are just boring. Like we're over it across the board. So I feel like the, then when we look around and we're like, oh, wait, this isn't actually over. Like we see e examples of really blatant sexism. They're like, oh, my God, that's so old fashioned. Like then we're like, OK, well, then let's just make this thing happen. Let's make it really obvious, guys. Women producer. Duh. Like, I mean, and I feel like we see like interviews with young women who are maybe like 19 and they're totally unfazed about being women and being producers mm -hmm. like they're even kind of like, oh, I find that unnecessary. And that's fantastic. Like, great. If you don't experience any expression of sexism in your life and you don't feel like there's any limitation on what you're doing because of your gender, great. Like, just run with that into the future and take the rest of us with you like, <laughs> like a sled dog. <laughs> we're just going to follow you. Um, but, I mean, I, I feel like we have experienced it even in, in our own selves, you know, kind of thinking like, oh, I wrote this song. So, um, yeah, I just need someone to make it sound really great and put it out in the world because I can't convey it myself out there. Like, I've definitely felt that myself. Yeah. Have you both experienced where someone has sort of assumed that you needed help or assumed that you haven't produced your work? Yeah. <laughs> Am I asking <laughs> obvious question? Yeah. I think, you know, what I've felt from people is like, they kind of erase you. Like, well, who mm -hmm. did that? And you're like, is someone else standing here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's cool because like we started, we used to perform with a laptop and then we got bored of that and wanted something that sounded bigger and crazier. So we started working with all these synths and all this outboard processing gear and our, our live shows got all this gear and it's cool. It's this completely different relationship with, with men. I mean, women come up too, but it really has this different relationship where guys come up like during or after the show and they're just like, Nice. Like, it, they actually give you this gesture of respect because we're standing there with so much gear and there's nobody else there. And I think they're like, uh, all right, cool, you guys do this. I mean, obviously not every guy's a sexist. Like, a lot of people are just like, cool, you're a woman, no big deal. But it definitely gets this different response. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, something that's frustrating for me is I feel like a lot of the producers in the Women Producer Archive are electronic artists or they, they work with synth synthesizers. And I feel like... You know, electronic music has such a diverse history of, of, of women, of house music, of people of all races and genders making yeah. dance music and electronic music. But now I feel like in the general consciousness, like EDM and 
which is very bro-y and has a history of sexism and like it's very masculine uh that is what most people think of when they think of electronic music and i'm just curious like how do you think that happened do you think the people is it like appropriation is it just uh, what do you think <laughs> it's a big question wow, it's just... a big question <laughs> well i mean it's odd because the first person who had a hit electronic record is wendy carlos mm-hmm. who was trans and also played beethoven yeah, you know, on a mode. It was <laughs> like yeah, she was playing. It was switched recording on, recording swi- like piece by piece, and and literally putting them together because the Moog wouldn't stay in tune um, enough to to play all the harmonies. It's and they, crazy. Yeah, and she was the first person, really, the most publicly out trans person in that era, in like nineteen early nineteen seventies or nineteen sixty nine. Um, and there had been there was like a conference, wasn't there, in like nineteen sixty nine, and there was three records. I can't remember what they all were, but the um, there were three electronic records, and the record label was like, we're going to try to push these electronic records. And they had no, they did not think that um, Wendy Carlos switched on Bach, which she recorded with Rachel Elkin. Her um, mm-hmm. audio engineer was also a woman, Rachel co-producer Elkin. Too. Yeah, they co-produced it together. Um, they they were not like betting on that one to be the big hit, mm-hmm. and then it just like slayed them. I mean, it was like <laughs> a mega mega hit. It was like in millions of homes across the United States, and that was like the first big electronic record. So, I mean, yeah, it's a trans woman. Like, I don't know how that switched over to being like bro territory. Also, I guess, I mean. I guess that's how electronic they introduced electronic music by using a style of music that that was popular, you know, and, and that more people could understand rather than like making a totally like new music. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I I don't know about EDM. Like I feel like I feel like it is is a popular style, like in the sense that that a lot of people can understand it. You know what I mean? Like it's accessible. And I, I don't. That's a really hard question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just do. You have an answer to that? <laughs> I, I, it's very dark when I think about it. But I yeah. just feel like I mean, you talked about sort of the labor that women do and how they're always producing, and it. I just think that like women have to sometimes break through and invent things, and then for men to be able to do it and make it, I guess, popular. Like their yeah. labor. I mean, how often like does women's labor get erased in music and art and yeah and history? So, and they were just written about more when you read that history. You know, I mean, Pauline Oliveros, you know, was right next to Morton Subutnik, you know, and like all of these people that we Steve Reich and, and Steve Philip Reich Glass. and Philip Glass and like they all studied together. And I had never heard her name for a long time. You know, even though you've you've heard everyone else, and they're just she just like was omitted. You know, and and now I feel like, you know, she's 84 and people, she's never been busier in her life because people are finally like, oh, you were there, (laughs) you know. Um, I feel like sort of feminist archives or archives of archives of women's history, feminist history is also in general relatively new like the Brooklyn Museum's feminist mu- mm-hmm. museum with the Judy Chicago dinner party like yeah. it was started in like 2002 yeah. or something and like I think about NYU's uh, Riot Girl library which uh-huh. has Kathleen Hanna's zines in it and Chris Krause's work. A lot work. of people's. Yeah, yeah yeah and so I mean just in general do you feel like f- feminist archives or like the the push to sort of record women's history is also on the rise? Well yeah 
you know, that Judy Chicago um, piece, she offered it to them and then she said, and you can have it if you display it forever. Mm, I did not know yeah. that. <laughs> she was like, and uh, you can only have it if you display it forever. She's powerful. She's really intense. Like, oh. did you see her show where she, it's all the pictures of vaginas? No, and I didn't see that. She, okay, Judy Chicago is a great example. So she was involved in the minimalist art movement in like the early 60s. And she was included with all the guys. Like there was a big show at the Jewish Museum. It was like all the seminal early like dude um minimalist art like um, sculpture was very macho you yeah know, in the 70s oh, yeah. yeah these right? guys are like i'm gonna make a box <laughs> you <laughs> know and um she was like running with them and her stuff was really minimal and really tough and cool her show talks all about it and then you know but she was like but i have to be all hard and i have to act like these guys to be included in this art scene and that's cool that i'm included you know she was like i appreciate that that i'm the one woman who gets represented in this you know in the mainstream art um, like contemporary art but then she was like but I don't want to have to be like them to be included I want to be able to be myself so her show marked all these canvases where she was writing on the canvas and saying I'm drawing this flower and it looks like a vagina and I'm really scared because I'm drawing a <laughs> vagina and I don't want to have to draw a vagina but it's happening <laughs> and, and her like she writes on the canvas like the the process of it like a journal and a picture and and then she just documented all about it and like and it, she how scary it was to be herself and be like you know what I'm gonna draw vaginas and that is my feminist gesture I should be included and drawing vaginas I shouldn't have to draw like hard tough guy shapes um, so she's like, and it was really incredible. I was really inspired by that because she was like, I'm going to do it my way and still be legitimized and not have to conform to your way of doing it, which. Yeah. Another reason she's a really good example is because she like went and she studied automotive painting so that she could um, learn how to spray these mm-hmm. enamels and stuff. And like it, that in that era, like <laughs> a woman could not do that. And she just went and did it. She she looked very manly, even mm-hmm. though she's just um, heterosexual, you know, and, and also she studied pyrotechnics. And and that was I guess that kind of broke her. She was like, <laughs> I'm not doing that again. <laughs> but she did all of that because that's what her work, that's what she wanted to do in her work. And I think when we were talking about, you know, touching knobs and all of these things, like like having the, um, you know, the bravery to walk in and be the one woman in the room and learn like engineering or learn, you know, automotive painting. I think that doesn't seem so difficult anymore. But I think that it's people like Judy Chicago who are like, I want to do this because I want to make this thing. Mm-hmm. And I have to learn it to do that. I don't want to ask some guy to do it. Like, I want to do it with my own hands, you know. And she did. And I think that's really inspiring, you know. The, the other thing I think is cool about her example of, like, deciding that she was going to paint vaginas as this kind of, like, well, because it's really what she really felt coming out of her is that a lot of the women producers who you hear their voice is so weird. It is not like the other music. Like Kate Bush, this weird music, and it's so cool. And like Missy Elliott, you know, it's like weird sounds coming out that she's making. And and Bjork, you know, I mean, I feel like her whole career is about making stuff that you wouldn't have thought would sound good together. And no mm-hmm. matter how, who she's worked with, it still has that Bjork sound, you know, because she's producing it, because she's making that world happen. Or like Nico Case, you yeah. know, I mean, she she developed her own style of music, which is really a mesh of a lot of different um, genres, I think, right. personally. I don't think it's country. And alt country didn't really exist when she started doing it. 
you know, and it, it's kind of a little gothy even, you know, but right. her voice is unmistakable and her writing style is unmistakable. I feel like that, like for me in the times, especially the things I produced, like when I was um, first starting out, it was so terrifying because like sound is so intimate. I feel like a drawing, people are a lot more... Um, they're a lot more literate about viewing. They can close their eyes. Like if you see a crooked painting, it's like you recognize that it's crooked. But sound is so intimate. It just goes right into you. You can't block it out. So when I was making sounds, they were so revealing. Like it was just, it was the sound of the moment when I made it. And it was really the scariest thing I had ever done before. And so I feel like there's this capacity for intimacy in making a sound and producing it and being that master of that sonic bubble of universe that you create is that it's just this this capacity for a really like intimate expression and that's why I love hearing what people do what women do especially in moments when they're like is this even a song like I could imagine Bjork I mean well I was gonna say Grimes but Bjork too mm-hmm. like the things that they've made you know at first coming out and being like is this legitimate like pop music because it's weird sounding you know like it's not exactly what everybody else is doing a lot of times, maybe because like you don't feel a huge sense of technical proficiency, you know, so you're like, just kind of figure it out however you can. I mean, there's lots of women who have extreme technical proficiency. So like you, for example, Melissa, (laughs) but like, I know when I'm doing it, I'm always kind of like driving kind of wild, you know, and stuff's just coming out and I'm like, whoa. And then a lot of times it seems so raw and revealing, but then later I look back and I'm like, oh, that's actually really cool that I was bold enough to try that. Yeah. It's just weird to me that like, I don't know, that men try to control women's music or women's production abilities or offer their services when it sounds like most of the fun happens in sort of like experimenting and finding your sound. And I mean, so many women in the archive were, you know, experimenting with sound, like free computers and synthesizers and, and stuff like that. I do think that, you know, even men in the studio, I think some of the best records are made because of happy mistakes and like people experimenting with like new ideas in engineering. You know, I mean, you can be a great engineer, but I think you're always like looking for something new. You know what I mean? A new style or a new way. And in a way, like maybe women not being a part of the greater scene allows, you know, somebody like Bjork or Grimes to sound different and mm-hmm. be like, well, I'm not part of it anyway, so I'm just going to yeah. I'm going to sing this way, you know? <laughs> yeah. And maybe, you know, I don't even think that men would think they're trying to control it. Mm. Like maybe they're just thinking Oh, that's so neat. I want to be a part of that. You know, that's and then a positive, that their yeah. way, I mean, that their way is being like, then you, yeah, I'll do it for you. And then I can be close to you because they're attracted to it. But I, I mean, I think the thing, the ways that the sexism is expressed for me is like, there's a really prominent producer who I'm not going to name their name, but you could go f- try to find this online who does interviews with um, other producers. And, you know, okay, they're always guys, whatever. Sure. Like he wants to interview the people who are his heroes and so far his heroes are, are male producers and that's fine. But we were watching um, one of them because we were like, oh, God, I, I like that guy too. You know, we wanted to hear the interview with Daniel Lanois and we were really excited. And then eight minutes in, a woman walks in naked and serves both of them drinks and then walks out. And I guess that happens in every edition of this series of interviews. And it's like, okay. So you wouldn't do that if your mom was in the room, right? Like, you wouldn't do that if your sister happened to be there, too. So, like, basically you're saying, like, you know, we, you're, you're with the guys because that's what you do because it's locker room behavior or whatever, you know. So it's like, oh, I'm totally not welcome here, you know. So, like, I wrote a comment because that's how I am on the YouTube. <laughs> and I was like, I was so into this till that happened. And then I was just really bummed and... Every once in a while, um, we'll get a response, and it'll be like, I'm a man, and I just want you to know I was really bummed, too. 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, just I think those are the things where it's like uh, production's not a space for you to be in. You know, right. I mean, that's the main thing I think where <coughs> it's like, uh, come on, guys. Yeah, this could be more fun. You know, <laughs> like, I mean, do you feel like most of the production community is sort of hostile in that way? No, I would no, never say that. that. But, you know, it takes, I would say no. And we know lots of guys who are really respectful mm-hmm. and really great. And actually, like, we were working with a manager, like, some years ago who was like, so do you guys want to produce your record? And I wasn't there yet. You know, I was like, no, I, I don't want to do it. I want to find someone else to do it for us because I was, I was like, it's hard, you know, mm-hmm. kind of before we'd gone on this journey of realizing that. I said that then, and then Melissa and I started working together, and we were like, oh, no one's going to find the sound we want. It's only us. We talked to a bunch of different producers who happened to all be guys, and they didn't. They just didn't hear the same thing we did. Mm-hmm. But our manager back then, he was a guy, and he was like, so you guys think you'd want to produce your record? And so he was super encouraging, you know? Like, I feel like there's lots of examples of people being encouraging, but then all it takes is one of someone being like, so are you guys going to find someone to produce for you? And then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned before about, you know, women producers who are don't really care about being in the scene and they're going to do their own thing outside of it. And um, I wanted to ask you, so Taylor Swift won her Grammy for Best Album of the Year. And uh, that was really cool. But she got on stage and behind her were all of her producers and they were all men. So, I, I mean, when people talk about you know, women's representation in music, do you feel like the conversation about women behind the scenes sort of gets lost because people are only focusing on performers or singers? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Period. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I think you're talking about like the, the, the largest part of the machine of music and, and that is such a gigantic machine, you know, like somebody like Taylor Swift, like, there's different producers on every song. There's different engineers. Sometimes there's different people mixing every song. You know, sometimes they're mastered in different places too. So it's crazy. This like record is actually like a lot of different people, you know, and um, under the swath of this one artist, you know what I mean? And, and I really love that. I think it's amazing, but that is not accessible to everyone as an artist. Like you need this, this giant, you know, corporate money after you or something, you know. Um, so in a way, it's like I don't even relate to that world, mm-hmm. you know. And, and most people that I think we talk to or have access to don't relate to that world completely. Or, you know, when we mention Bjork or something, she's not doing that either. You know, actually, she probably has a different producer for some or, or a different engineer for some songs and other ones. But she had the same engineer for like a decade, you know, and they had this really intimate relationship. And I don't know. I I think it's a it's a hard question. To be fair, though, to Taylor Swift, um, I haven't watched it yet, but someone just told us that she has oh, yeah. a whole video available through the Grammys site where she um, has Imogene Heap. Is that how you pronounce her name? Oh, yes. Produce a song for her, yeah. and then she made a whole documentary about it. So, I mean, you know, Taylor reached out to this one. Fist up, Taylor. <laughs> she's, she's going for it. Yeah. I also think that like there's this idea that there's this singularity in in any art like art like artistry. It's like you always want to say it's a person, you know. When actually it's a it's very collaborative. Music is extremely collaborative, and I think when when you were talking about EDM earlier, I think that that is a world where it is singular often, and so it's very ego based, mm-hmm. you know. And and I think when you make a different genre of records, it's impossible to do it on your own. Like, you just can't. Yeah. Like, 
Um, and I think if you're not a nerd who makes music or is a nerd about music, you may not know all of the different moving parts it takes to record something. Well, we just want to consume the you music. Know. You know? We don't have to <laughs> yeah. do all that work. You just hear the song. No, you want to hear stuff. that song. <laughs> yeah. That was MTV's Hazel Sills speaking with Melissa Dine and Kayla Marisich of the band The Blow and creators of the online archive, womanproducer.com. We really think you should check it out. MTV music writer and one of our favorite poets, Hanif Willis Abdurraqib, stopped by our New York studio last week, and we somehow convinced him to record a poem for us. It's called, And Who, This Time. Enjoy. And Who, This Time, Will Starve the Mouths of Cocked and Eager Guns. And Who, This Time, Will Place Themselves in Front of the Machinery of Burial. And who this time will kiss under the aching moonlight like the world isn't crumbling at their backs. And who this time will take the babies to the rising river and let the divine apocalypse wash over their heads. And who this time will not run from the fire whispering its way along a city's spine. And who this time will break the tree's lowest branch and bend it into the fire. And who this time will carry the torch to the temple gates and interrupt the crowning and the victory feasts and the parades dragging long into the streets. And who this time will weigh the price of heaven in their palms and instead turn to the faces of their people. And who this time will say yes. Yes, we will go through hell now, but the hell will be ours and ours alone. And who this time will be unafraid to become the righteous demon. And who this time will cast out all others who would wish a worse hell upon our hell. And who, this time, will remind their people that there are more of us than there are of them, and will mean that we all have ancestors, and some of them built this country, and some of them were fed into the hunger of war to keep this country built, and some of them were dragged across Kelly Ingram Park by the jaws of police dogs, and some of them were pushed like dying weeds down Birmingham by the riot hoses, and some of them washed blood out of their only good pair of marching shoes and some of them washed blood out of their grandmother's only good pair of sheets, and some of them buried their children at dawn and pressed their backs against police barricades at dusk, and some of them filled prisons and hummed the words from a spiritual passed down from their mothers who sit in empty houses with wide yards paid for with the money their children got from doing what a judge said won't have them home for another twenty, and some of them hover in the night and lock arms above our gathering, and some of them lean into our ears and share a small blessing. They can't kill us until they kill us. They can't kill us until they kill us. They can't kill us until they kill us. They can't kill us. That was MTV's own Hanif Willis Abdurraqib reading And Who This Time. You can check out his music writing at mtv.com, and his poetry book, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, was published this year by Button Poetry, and I have it on good authority that it makes a lovely gift. That's it for The Stakes this week. I'm Holly Anderson. We hope you have a great time celebrating this weekend with family, friends, dignitaries, or Netflix. Do you, listener? Do you. We'll have another holiday episode for you next Friday. Until then, stay as safe as you can out there and take care of each other.